you know, I've never thought about how I'm going to introduce the podcast. <laughs> it's the best. Do I have to say something before we start? <laughs> so, right. Hi everyone, I'm Danny Chambers. I'm one of the founders and admins on the Veterinary Voices Group. And we're doing our very first podcast. And this is our very first episode, which is one reason I've got my friend Katie Ford here to talk about imposter syndrome, as this seems pretty apt, as I'm not entirely sure what I'm doing with the technology and the interviewing. But I'm hoping, Katie, you're going to help me get through this first episode. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Danny. And I feel like this is a really strange full circle moment that we were just talking about before we started the episode and the fact that it was actually on Veterinary Voices that I started sharing some of my story six years ago now, which is just mind blowing. And I remember messaging you, Danny, and saying, I've recorded this short video that explains a little bit of my story, feeling like an imposter, feeling not good enough. Can I post it in the group? Yeah. And you know we've got 18,000 members of the group we get thousands of posts every month and every now and then someone posts something really insightful and changes the way you 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 view things and so when you um messaged me that I was just like wow this this is something that so many people will identify with because I think you're a bit nervous about posting it and when you posted it the reaction was phenomenal and I think it really did show that within the veterinary world whether they knew what it was called or not imposter syndrome is something many people could identify with. Yeah, and that was a huge part of my story in general, Danny, was I experienced feeling like an imposter for many years in practice. And I kept trying to outwork that. I didn't talk to anyone about it because first of all, I didn't know this was a common experience. I thought it was a personal fault with me. I thought I was the only one that had ever felt this way. I didn't know who to talk to. I didn't even dare share that. But actually, when I would found things that had really helped and my eyes were open to it and I'd gone and lived the things that I'd learned in practice, I'd started having more conversations with the people that I worked with and realized, hang on one second, this definitely isn't just me. And it was a year later that I decided I was going to film that video. And yeah, absolutely, it was scary. And I was so grateful for the support from you, Danny, and from everyone else watching that and saying, yeah, you definitely need to post this because at that point, it was a pretty scary and vulnerable thing to do to say, you know, I've got all these qualifications. I've done my cert at that point and this is how I felt. And you know what? I realized I wasn't the only one. And like you said, the the response to that was so encouraging and that put me onto a path that I never expected. So here I am six years later where I've trained further as a coach. I'm just finishing up a master's degree. I've trained in loads of different modalities. I've spoken hundreds of times on the topic. I've worked inside and outside of the profession, started businesses that support other vets and vet nurses. And I never, ever expected that. I was just joking to you saying, I, I was meant to be a medicine specialist. I'm not quite sure how this happened, but I love uh, it. So just so you know, I've got man flu at the moment. Um, as a woman you won't really be able to identify with the amount of suffering that I'm going through but before we start I just thought we go right to the very basics before we get to, to the details so can you there's sort of three sort of fairly quick questions is firstly what is imposter syndrome a really brief summary for people who maybe haven't heard of it yeah absolutely I mean if we head to the dictionary definition it's the persistent internalized fear that our 
accolades our achievements weren't legitimately earned and we don't think it's as a result of our skills we don't think it's as a result of us so essentially we think someone might find out that we're not as good as they think they think we are or they might discover that we've done things illegitimately or we aren't good enough for whatever reason we don't fit in so it's this niggly persistent worry that yeah, we we don't deserve to be here in this space. We haven't done it well enough or someone's going to find us out. Do you mean sort of for vets kind of like feeling like although they have passed their exams, they somehow fluked it, got through and they're not really worthy of being a vet? Is that the sort of thing you mean? Yeah, absolutely. That's what I mean. And when we talk about it in terms of feeling like an imposter and imposter syndrome is usually with regard to us having the evidence there in front of us, but we don't feel like it was legitimately earned, which is that very slight difference between imposter syndrome and self-doubt. Imposter syndrome is actually kind of a, a little chapter of self-doubt where we doubt our achievements, but they're not completely the same. They're not interchangeable. So Imposter syndrome is absolutely that. You have passed your veterinary degree, right? Someone decided you were good enough to pass those exams. Yet we worry, hang on one second, is someone going to find out that I'm not as good as they think I am? Am I a, quote, real vet or real veterinary nurse? Because YZ, when actually, technically, you've got the actual evidence in front of you. Um, So, yeah, hopefully that summarises it. I think the more now, compared to six years ago when I first posted in Vet Voices, Danny, People immediately, if I ask them in a talk, do you know what imposter syndrome is? And we can maybe touch on the word syndrome in just a second. Mm. Most people pop their hand up now, which is good. So just to sort of get down to the nitty gritty of it, um, is there a difference between imposter syndrome and, you know, just being sensibly cautious? Just for example, if I'm doing a surgery I haven't done before or I haven't done one for a long time, and I'm feeling like slightly uh, anxious or nervous about it. Um, isn't that just being sort of sensible that, you know, you want to make sure you've got the right support around you, that you're not just charging in, doing something a bit brash. How's that different, even though I'm qualified to do the surgery, because I've passed my exams, I've done it before maybe. Is, is that, um, what's the difference between, between being sensibly cautious and having imposter syndrome? Great question. and. I feel like this could be a whole episode in itself if we were to really dig deeper into this. But I think this comes back to where I was talking about self-doubt versus imposter syndrome as well. There is nothing wrong with us being a little cautious. Like self-doubt, a healthy dose of self-doubt is a good thing in many circumstances. You know, I laugh about it, but it's why we look twice before we cross the road. You know, we're like, actually, I've crossed the road many times before, but I'm always going to double check before I do it. That's a great Yeah, bearing that one in mind, I think. And again, I think it says looking at the facts, looking at things like self-compassion, self-awareness, knowing ourselves, knowing our skill set, knowing our strengths and realizing, you know what, actually, I haven't done this for a while. It doesn't make me an imposter if I ask somebody to scrub in with me. It doesn't make me an imposter if I have to go and double check and go into Fossum and go and look up the technique of this again. It doesn't make me an imposter if I have to say to a colleague, can I just ask you what size suture material you'd use here? Because sometimes we can have that overlap in between. So it is first of all, is looking at those facts and bringing some compassion to it as well. And the reason no reason for us to say okay I feel like an imposter I need to completely 
ditch this and plow on through without any level of double checking or self-doubt. It's just bringing a little bit more awareness, self-compassion, fact-based awareness as well in there. And thinking about what we'd say to a friend or to a colleague, because mm. often those pressures that we're listening to, we never put onto somebody else. So when it's genuine imposter syndrome, as opposed to just taking sensible precautions before you undertake an activity, that's when it's sort of crippling, is it? You know, it stops you being able to enjoy your work and it stops you maybe even progressing in your career because it's affecting your your day-to-day activity. Is that the difference between being nervous before you do a new procedure to having actual imposter syndrome? Great question, again. And I think the thing is, the actual experience of feeling like an imposter is going to be quite different per individual and what they end up classifying that as. So some people might class those moments that you're talking about as this is a little impostery moment where actually I take a second to check back in on the facts and realign, okay, how am I choosing to look at this situation? So this little bit of doubt is coming in. They might have labeled that as feeling like an imposter. We'll talk about the word syndrome. I know I keep saying this in a second. The other end of that is where we buy into every bit of doubt and we think, oh my gosh, I am an imposter. I need to get rid of this. These achievements weren't legitimately earned. I'm going to make a mistake. I'm going to fail. Someone's going to find me out. And we've bought so far into that story, which then can lead to things like reduced self-esteem. We might avoid new challenges. We might become stagnated in our career. We might be anxious. We might overwork to try and compensate for that. We might start comparing constantly to everybody else. So I'd say rather than us getting too hung up on trying to put it into distinct boxes, I'd say it's more about how it's affecting the individual. So the whole definition of imposter syndrome is that we're looking at, we've got the evidence that we can do something in front of us and we're doubting it. Self-doubt is having a check-in as to our skill set, our abilities, am I the person to do this? And there is an absolute gray area in between those two things. As other than us looking at trying to distinctly put a label on it, the more important place to place our focus in this is things like self-awareness, self-compassion. And those two things, rather than us getting too sort of cognitively tied into, is this self-doubt? Is this imposter syndrome? And I'll touch on it just really quickly now um, before we go further into this, because I, I keep alluding to it, this idea of syndrome. Syndrome, yes. Yes. <laughs> When this was first documented in the 1970s by two psychologists, Pauline Clance and Suzanne Imes, it was called the imposter phenomenon. Right? And through, through the years, it has become called imposter syndrome. Now, we know as medics that um, maybe we don't know this, to be fair. A syndrome actually is a set of signs that appear at the same time without a distinct cause. It's not a disease. Mm. But often we hear the word syndrome and people go, oh my gosh, there's something wrong with me. This is a personal fault. Whereas actually I say this to say, you know what, it's almost like the weather that turns up sometimes. It's something that for some people can turn up as this fleeting moment and for others it can kind of grumble on in the background. So it's not a personal fault. It's not a medical condition. And I know we'll come on to this further, but just if anyone is listening and think, oh my gosh, that's me. Yeah, you know, 70% of the population the most commonly cited figure have experienced feeling like this and often in a room of vets and vet nurses I'll say who's ever had these moments where they think someone's going to find out that I don't know what I'm doing and most people will pop their hand up at some point 
Yes. No, there's it's a lot of pressure, isn't it? I guess it's um the reason I was sort of pushing on the definitions really is just because we talk a lot about mental health and as you know, I'm a trustee of vet life, the mental health charity for vets, and it can sometimes be helpful and sometimes unhelpful if people, you know, don't recognise they have a mental health condition, because once they recognise it, they can put a support network in place and take action to, you know, get help for it. And what is unhelpful is if you think you have a mental health condition when you don't. So, and I just sort of, you know, imposter syndrome isn't classified as a mental health condition, is it? I mean, it is a normal experience, but I suppose having, if you, if you do, if you are depressed or you, you have anxiety, are you more likely to experience imposter syndrome? Mm-hmm. Is, it, is it related to some mental health issues or made worse by mental health issues? Yeah, great question. Again, the evidence that we've got from one of the latest review papers from 2019 suggests that there are comorbidities alongside imposter syndrome. So that tends to be things like anxiety, depression. There is also some tentative links to burnout. They just don't know cause and effect, which one um, cause which. Mm. And I think the really important thing for us to remember here is that we're not the ones to diagnose ourselves with mental health conditions. Actually, it's more about the individual experience. So that's why my previous answer probably seemed a little bit gray because we cannot put things into distinct boxes often. And it's worthwhile just thinking, okay, if my experience of feeling like I'm going to get found out and feeling like somebody thinks that I don't know what I'm doing impacts my life on a regular basis in a negative way that's detrimental to my mental health and well-being, that's a point to reach out for some more support and see if someone can help us through that. Because absolutely, whilst we found in the review papers that there can be things like depression, anxiety, burnout, reduced job satisfaction, alongside feeling like an imposter, they can also contribute back to it. So if we've got um, anxiety, for example, if we have clinical anxiety, And that may well be contributing to some of our experiences as well. So it might be this kind of back and forth experience there. And again, I've touched on this slightly already, but there's this whole kind of spectrum of experience of feeling like an imposter. And that's why I think it's really important when we talk about it to lean into everyone being an individual. It's really easy for people to put things online, being like, here are five top tips guaranteed to help you feel like, help you if you feel like an imposter. Here's the one thing that you have to do. I'm going to get rid of your imposter syndrome in 30 days. But actually, that ignores the nuance of everybody's individual factors that play into it. So, Because that's a good point, your individual factor. You've got how you feel about things, but then you have got a situation that you're working within. So for us, it's often, for most people, it's within the veterinary clinic. Yes. I suppose there is a huge difference depending on the team you're in, the type of mentorship you get, the kind of support you get when you've we, we've touched, not everyone does surgery all the time, but it's a good good example, isn't it? It's, you know, if, you, if you're performing surgery, whether you've got someone else who's available to scrub in, to teach you how to do it for the first time, you've got a great nursing team helping you with the anesthesia, you're going to have a very different experience to whether if you find yourself on your own, doing it for the first time with a book open, with a nurse that's never that you've never worked with before, the, the same person's going to react differently in those two situations, aren't they? So if you feel as though you have imposter syndrome all the time, and some people feel like they rarely get it, is it likely to be a lot to do with the, the type of work that you're in? Is that a big factor? It can be. I think with regard to individuals, 
feeling like imposters. There are loads of different factors that can play in. And I'll run through a couple of them and then I'll touch back on the, the workplace piece because this is huge and often yeah. gets missed out of discussions because I think we have a tendency as professionals to kind of become almost the soloist of thinking this must be a me thing mm. I must deal with this completely on my own and missing out the fact that perhaps our environment is playing into it so the factors that can play in to us feeling like imposters might be sometimes our belief systems the things that we think are true our past experiences how we feel about ourselves at our core do we feel like we're not good enough which is a really common human thing we go through a world where we're constantly taught that we're not enough so for example we might have a vision in our mind of what we think that a vet in say clinical or non-clinical practice should look like as in what should they have done by which stage of their career how competent should they be in certain surgeries by whichever point and then without us even always being consciously aware of it we're cross-referencing back to that just like we talked about the podcast host idea Danny we've got an idea of I don't know you might have in your mind um Stephen Bartlett or Joe Rogan or somebody that is out there as these are the world's probably most popular even if we don't all have a natural tendency to like those people they're the people that we think of as this is a successful podcast host this is what it should look like and the same thing happens in life in general we've got fear of failure and we'll come back to that as a massive driver mm. we've got things like workplace and culture we've got individual factors so things like pre-existing mental health conditions like we've said we've got things like um neurodivergence neurodiversity we've got um looking at diversity in general again comes back into that stereotypes piece we've got times when it might shout a little bit louder so job changes after a big amount of time off, after promotions, mm. times where we're growing. And some will argue maybe our personality factors might come into that too, although that's up for debate a little bit in terms of is personality traits are actually things we've practiced time and time and time again. So when we're looking at workplace, which was the original question, there is actually evidence towards this. Mm. And interestingly, they found that those that have what they perceive to be a highly supportive organization tend to have lower incidences of imposter syndrome. So they use an imposter scoring syndrome, um, imposter syndrome scoring scale, essentially. Mm. Now, I never signpost people to this because I, I just don't generally find it helpful other than just in research. But the work that has been done is really interesting and in saying that those places that are supportive are useful in generally helping to lower those levels. Now it's not a be all and end all. This isn't us just blaming our workplaces and saying it's the only factor in this. This is us saying that actually, if you feel like an imposter and someone's gonna find you out, and one of the drivers of that is fearing that something's going to go wrong, and you're in a workplace that if something does go wrong, everyone immediately blames each other mm. and you're not supported, then it would make sense that that is probably contributing because it's just reinforcing a belief that you have that failure is bad and it's scary. Yeah. And if you fail, someone's going to find you out. So the things that come into being a highly supportive workplace, again, the work that was done was from McDowdle in 2015, where they looked at this idea of highly supportive workplaces and feeling like imposters. They measure a highly supportive workplace based off a scale from the early 2000s from, I think it's Eisenberger. And they looked at it's things like 
supporting well-being. So psychological safety, making work a health and um, a healthy and safe place to be, promoting work-life balance, making that possible, offering support in terms of physical and emotional health support in whatever way that looks like. Resources, making sure that people actually have the right equipment that they need, the right training that they need. Because I'm sure, I don't know if you resonate with this, Danny, but sometimes there have been times in previous roles where I've not had the equipment that I've needed that would have fairly been quite standard. And I felt like, oh my God, I'm not doing this right. So, yeah, as someone who's local and done a lot of practices, one thing I really hate is um, having really bad or inadequate teeth rasping kits because it's one of, you know, for horses, it's one of your your bread and butter procedures you're expected to do several a day sometimes and if you're feeling like you're doing a bad job because your equipment isn't up to standard it is really frustrating yeah and I think it's really interesting when we even notice that this is a thing because we realize what pressure we put on ourselves it's a bit like I remember being in small animal practice with the world's least useful ultrasound machine Mm. and then putting pressure on myself to find the adrenal glands with it it was useful to find free fluid or to be able to visualize the bladder but actually that equipment wasn't at a level to do that now obviously we see this with context and with sensibility and we're not expecting every single practice to own an MRI machine a CT scanner and all these things but bearing this in mind and just briefly the other parts that come into that concept of a highly supportive organization are things like recognition where people are getting feedback on a continuous basis they're being recognized because One of the other things I've seen from the other side of that, being in practice, having been in a leadership role before, is that it's really easy for people to assume that everyone knows they're doing a good job. Yeah. Because you can see it from the outside. That's a really good point. And I think, you know, I'm asking you a lot of questions about imposter syndrome, obviously, but we've we've worked with a lot of people. And in my experience, the people who appear to be the least confident, you know, the vets and vet nurses who struggle with imposter syndrome are also the ones that seem in my eyes to be doing a phenomenal job and there's no objective reason for them to be doubting themselves at all I find it fascinating that the people with the sort of worst imposter syndrome are often some of the best clinicians the most competent people I've ever met yeah it's so common as well I I do see this and there's a quote that says um imposter syndrome is the realm of the high achiever ironically and that tends to be the case but the other thing to bear in mind is that we do not know what's going on for anyone else externally in my own version and my own I hate the word journey like we need a replacement for the world journey (laughs) my own story is that externally I look like I had everything sorted out and nobody would have ever thought that I doubted myself and actually I think sometimes it's stepping back and is looking at those pressures that maybe we're noticing that we're listening to ourselves that let's get curious about them we didn't choose them and they're usually someone else's story there's someone else's pressure that's going to be different for every individual but at the same time yeah let's absolutely look at that wider scope of the workplace and the environment that we're in in terms of things like having open communications having responsive support that's actually there having a mentor in practice or someone that we can talk to our support systems where we chat to them and we can let them hold that mirror back up to us to remind us of our strengths because the interesting thing about our mind is that often when we've been listening to a story or a narrative about us being an imposter and we're going to get found out and we're not good enough inherently we end up just having our focus put on those areas 
well, we're not good enough. And they feel so real and they feel huge because all the things that we are good at either feel like, well, this is normal. Everyone can do this. That's nothing special. Mm. Or we've got to that point of unconscious competence where we don't even notice it's something that we're good at anymore or that it was something that we struggled with. So it's trying to look at ourselves as whole humans and looking at the external factors and the internal ones too. Because a lot of the stories that we listen to that tell us we're imposters, we didn't choose. Like we say, our belief systems, we've gone through school where we've been taught that failing is bad because if we fail the exam, even at a young age, we had detention. We weren't allowed to go to playtime. What's everyone else going to think, for example? We're taught to compare, we're taught to compete, we're taught to fit in. And then when we head into a world that actually is very malleable, very changeable, very variable, we've then got a lot of these pressures that come along saying, you should do this perfectly when perfect doesn't exist. You shouldn't ever ask for help with this. Remember how often we've been praised as youngsters for congratulations you did this completely on your own well done it might be that we've got this pressure that we are the smart ones or we are the ones that do things quickly and easily or success is only if I do this super quickly the first time and I do it brilliantly or it might be that we feel like we should know everything again we've gone through systems where we've been judged on our knowledge being our value for whatever reason So actually, a lot of these beliefs and pressures have been repeated so many times to us through life across society that then extend out into a world where they're not always that helpful. So sometimes when we feel like imposters, it's starting to get curious and just notice if we feel able to do or we might do this with someone else, which we'll come on to is I'm going to get found out for what? What am I going to get found out for? Not knowing everything? well, hang on a minute, nobody knows everything. Am I going to get found out for the fact that the first time I did a podcast, I didn't really know what I was doing with it? Well, everybody, every other podcast host out there did episode one at some point. Yeah, we, can, we can just delete this. <laughs> <laughs> but the um, what you touched on about validation, about your early career and your child is really true. I think for vets in particular, we've often had to be, um, achieving quite high scores academically, um, whether it's GCSE, A-level, and through vet school, and your worth is very much tied to whether you get these exam results. And that's because in the exam, there's always a right or wrong answer. And then once yeah. you graduate, there's so much uncertainty, isn't there? Every, sometimes you know, you've been in front of an animal and you can get the diagnosis right, you can get the treatment right, and the dog will die anyway. Or... You can get the diagnosis right, the treatment right, the dog will get better, and the owner might complain about you anyway. And we're sort of moving from a situation where there's always a right answer that you can get right to a world where you can do everything right and still have a a bad outcome or a a frustrating outcome or an unsatisfactory outcome. And if you're used to just getting the exam result with a big tick and that being your validation and then finding that you haven't saved every life even though you've done everything right I guess that feels out of your control doesn't it absolutely and that was definitely a big part of my own story as well was that when I went through life I felt like if things were going well at work I could feel good about myself and the minute that anything didn't I thought someone's going to realize that all those good times were a fluke 
or I just got lucky and I didn't really earn them. And actually, we can start to, as adults, realign on who am I, what's important to me and what flexible approach am I going to bring to the thinking around this case? What self-compassion am I going to bring in as well? And start to notice some of those stories with or without help to do that and say, hang on one second. I didn't choose this. This wasn't one of my stories. What is a way that I can have a better conversation with these pressures that come up saying you should do this all perfectly? You should know the answer straight away, because a lot of the time it's it's really unrealistic for that to be the case. Mm. I always remember, I think it might be um, a quote from Andy Rock that said, we can never practice vet med perfectly, but we can always practice it with enthusiasm and compassion. That's really good. Yeah, I loved that. And that sat with me for a long time in practice. So I thought, you know what, I can always bring compassion and enthusiasm, even if I can't bring perfection, because perfect is a mind made construct. Mm. Perfect doesn't exist. Perfect is always an inch above what we've done. Mm. Perfect is really frustrating for so many of us. So One of the things that I always say is when we feel like imposters, we feel the pressure of who we think we need to be to survive. And actually in that process, we miss out on who we actually are. So previously through life, we've been taught time and time again that to survive, fit in, have our needs met at that point, we should get perfect grades. We should get 100%. We should always get everything right. And then one of the things that I did in practice before I realized this was actually a thing was, you know what, I'm just going to work a bit harder. I'm going to make sure that nothing ever doesn't go to plan. I'm going to go in on my days off. I'm going to run past work when I'm not working. I'm going to see my clients. I'm going to see them on a Saturday, even if I'm not working. And I'll quiet my mind by making sure nothing ever goes wrong. But actually, there's so much that's not in our control, especially with animals. And there's so much value to us looking slightly to a different direction of things like self-compassion, self-awareness and what we call building self-efficacy which is really linked to feeling like an imposter and maybe we can touch on this in a minute as well but like you've said I think it's bringing ourselves a little bit of forgiveness curiosity rather than criticism and understanding to say we understand where a lot of those pressures maybe came from but actually as adults would we still sign up to those things would we still ask those things of ourselves because we can't do it perfectly at the end of the day, but we can bring a little bit of curiosity. We can create that pause to say, this surgery, is this something that I can do based on past experience? How can I make sure I'm in the stretch zone rather than the panic zone? What do I need to be a little bit more compassionate to me? Or is it that today, actually, this isn't a surgery for me to do? You know what? This just isn't, this does not mean that I am a fraud or I'm an imposter. This is something that I might work towards doing at some point. It might be something that I actually have no interest in doing. And I'm going to pass it over to you and know full well that all my achievements are still legitimately deserved. But this just isn't the surgery for me to do today. That's really interesting. Um, Just through your discussion there about seeing animals on the the weekend off, it just reminded me, um, it's a bit of an aside, but it reminded me of the first um, complaint I had from an owner, the first formal complaint, and I had happened to pop in and see a horse on the weekend that wasn't working to see how it was doing and um I can remember what happened exactly but they ended up complaining about that <laughs> so, oh, <laughs> so I hadn't even turned up <laughs> I wouldn't have had the complaint <laughs> oh <laughs> it's a proper like backfired yeah. moment isn't it as well but, honestly um, could I just ask you so 
sort of personal your sort of personal experience of, of this because you're now an expert sort of in imposter syndrome you've been sort of giving talks on this for over six years now do you still have it I still get the feeling I just don't classify it often as I'm an imposter I mm. classify it as okay this is a moment for me to check in with where I actually am with the facts and with the pressures that maybe I'm listening to. So I never go out there and say, we're going to get rid of this completely. I say, let's look at how we can navigate this differently. Because as we push comfort zones and we do new things, of which I do a lot, you know, I'm stepping in, on big stages in different industries now in front of new people. And inherently, at a nervous system level, that is going to bring some threats. You know, even if cognitively rationally you're like no this is fine on some level it is going to bring something up because we're human at the end of the day so when that comes up now I've got tools and techniques that I know help me and everyone's going to be a little bit different as to that sort of portfolio of things that help them and who's in that support system but I do get the feeling that pops up I just interpret it differently now and one of the things that I also do is I don't have that layer of judgment that comes on on top saying you should or shouldn't feel this way which often I think weirdly as a society we've created around imposter syndrome and I invite anyone that's listening to say you know what let's take off this judgment of feeling like an imposter being a bad thing or trying to force ourselves to see it as a good thing and mm. just bring in some curiosity to it so now I do if I've got those moments, I've got various things that help me. But one of them is I just notice like the story that's coming up around it and noticing what I need in that moment, because it's really easy for us to end up with some of those pressures from school extended to us in terms of, oh, my gosh, well, I don't have a PhD in imposter syndrome. I am not a university professor. Who am I to speak about this? And those are the moments where I sit back and say, you know what, you are not proclaiming to be any of those things. I would be an imposter if I stood on the stage and said, I speak at the University of Manchester. Um, I am a professor there because I'm not. But what I do say is I stand on the stage and I say, I've done this training. This is my lived experience of it. This is the evidence that I'm bringing with me as well. Here is the signposting for further support around this. This is what I do. This is a limitation of what I do. And I like what you said. I'm thinking about what you said previously as well about um, sort of not recognizing how much you've progressed, as in people who've got imposter syndrome, but if they remember a year ago, they were nervous about, I don't know, doing a dog castrate or a horse castrate. And now they're nervous about, uh, you know, pinning a femur, which is a new procedure to them, but they can do, you know, castrations with their eyes closed. You know, that's progression, isn't it? And they still think they're not good enough, even though they're progressing and upping their skill levels and 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 every time they've actually met the challenge that was in front of them and I think one of the really valuable things that we can do is creating space to just check in and reflect on these things so there are studies and I just touched on this very briefly around the link between feeling like an imposter and what we call self-efficacy and self-efficacy is our belief in ourselves, and it was first talked about by um, Albert Bandura around a similar time that imposter syndrome was documented originally or imposter phenomenon. So this is something that we can build our self-efficacy, which is by actually building our belief in ourselves and our abilities. And this might be things like spending a little bit of time at the end of the day, writing down the things that did go well, saving our wins, acknowledging the steps that we've taken, 
perhaps setting some goals that are doable and are aligned and we're doing them consciously with intention saying I made this happen look I set out to do it because one of the things is when we feel like an imposter we're like how did this happen this just came out of nowhere I just fluked it anyone could have done that and we just didn't end up ever taking that time to look back and for anyone listening this can be really valuable exercise to do if you feel able to do it's just answering that question how did I get here well let's answer it you know what I spent months getting work experience to apply for vet school I went through vet school I passed the exams whilst I was there I did all the EMS and preclinical EMS that I needed to do I did this and then I went into practice and I spent this many years doing this this and this and remembering and, that the vet school's exams are set so that you know even if you in in inverted commas scrape a purse you're not really because it's set that the, the minimum standard is that you yep. will be a competent and safe vet when you graduate and you cannot yep. possibly pass an exam in vet school unless you are going to be a competent and safe vet when you graduate yeah that's a hundred percent it and I think the other thing and I was thinking about this the other day actually Danny is if being a good vet means we know absolutely everything we do every surgery perfectly and we never have a single complication we never ask for any help everything we do the first time we do it quickly and easily and we juggle every single role in our lives without issue we are the best at everything if that is the definition of perfect vet and that is what we're all pretending to be then heck we're all imposters because nobody is that this is the theoretical standard that is this illusion in all of our minds that we have kind of in inherently being handed through society and that's what people end up cross-referencing themselves to and missing out all the amazing valuable unique parts of them as well yeah. and missing out the the joy and of fulfillment and what you have achieved and are achieving I think if you you know it's a it's a very rewarding it's a very prestigious career being a veterinary surgeon or a veterinary nurse it's fulfilling you know society views what you're doing as valuable yeah. and it's it's a shame if you're sort of robbed of all the joy of that because you're you're worried or about the next step or meeting the next challenge and it sort of you know, they, like they say worrying about tomorrow takes away the joy from today and I think imposter syndrome uh, you know severe cases of it must do that definitely and I think a lot of it is is first of all recognizing that a lot of the imposter pressures we didn't choose but we do sometimes need someone to help us navigate our way through those and looking at that wider picture of all the different factors that play into that too if it's something that just pops up at various points of people and like, you know what, it's a niggle. Let's start to notice some of those pressures because you might have seen that I've added a few like common pressures that people put on themselves, knowing everything, doing everything on their own. These are based on the five imposter archetypes by Valerie Young. She's a psychologist that worked with lots of people that felt like imposters. And she kind of classified those fears, pressures, failures, successes into these five, five categories, which we've probably not got time to touch on here. But actually, at the same time, it's as sitting back and looking at what is my definition of success? Because if we're comparing us being a fraud or not being a fraud to society's definition that none of us actually would really buy into, that idea that we should know everything, we should do everything perfectly, et cetera, et cetera. 
then we're inherently always going to feel not not enough compared to that. And on a, a nervous system level, which, again, this could probably be a, another podcast in itself, when we start to feel really scared or really fearful because we've bought into a story that's told us you're not good enough, someone's going to find you out, there's danger, is we know at that point that our amygdala takes over. We get amygdala hijack. We have our sympathetic nervous system responses kicked in. At that point, our blood flow has been redirected to our muscles and away from our logical, rational prefrontal cortex, because our mind on a subconscious level has said, this is scary, this is dangerous, you need to get out of this situation and move away from it. Which is why sometimes we're like, I know I'm not really an imposter, but I really feel it in this moment and it feels really real and I can't seem to persuade myself otherwise. And that's a point for us to find those other mechanisms that help us show our nervous system that it's safe because our nervous system doesn't really speak any lingual language it doesn't speak English so for some people that might be things like mindfulness based techniques that might be things like breath work in the moment this again could be another podcast in itself but just bearing in mind that sometimes when we buy into those stories and they feel really real is that sometimes we do need to drop out of our head and do the other things that help us gain back a little bit of rationality and in the times in between not in the moments of oh my gosh I feel so much like an imposter right now this second in the gaps in between is for us to start using that time to say okay what is success to me Mm. who actually am I so in those moments of feeling like an imposter as I said before when we feel like imposters we feel the pressure to be who we think we should be to survive and we forget who we are in the process in those gaps in between let's start to get to know us not who we think we should be but who we actually are what are our strengths what are we defining success as what is success to us because actually what is your definition of a good bet because to me it actually isn't knowing everything to me it's not being the fastest or the quickest or the one that does everything super easily the first time and I'm pretty sure that wouldn't be the definition to most of the people that were being the vet to for clients well i'll tell you what yeah exactly right i mean if you ask owners what who they consider to be a good vet um in their eyes and they're they don't have a clue how long how fast your surgery is what your experience is what exams you've got at vet school whether you've done any postgraduate studies and it completely comes down to whether they liked you and felt as though you cared about them and their animal i think um that you know being a popular vet is, is very different to being what what people what vets think a good vet is I think yeah a hundred percent and actually one of my my business partners um Claire Grigson she's also a vet and a coach and we do a lot of the new graduate training now and one of the things that she frequently shares is her lovely dog cabbage ended up being diagnosed with lymphoma and she went to Edinburgh vet school to have uh, chemotherapy And she says, you know what really struck her? Because she's been a vet for 17 years, did a lot of charity practice. She said, the one thing that I remembered wasn't if they remembered the COP protocol first time. I didn't even really remember what qualifications any of them had got. I just remembered how they made us feel and the fact that they cared for her and for Cabbage and that they made them feel like individuals. And even though Cabbage, Claire will admit, isn't the easiest of dogs to deal with and um, needs sedation before she goes and things like this, that actually they made her feel like an individual. They made her feel listened to. They made her feel heard. And we regularly share that and say, you know what? 
she says very frequently, I, I didn't remember what they remembered. No. I didn't I care I think... if they had to go and double check something. No, they don't. I've never had anyone criticise me for saying I'm going to ask a colleague or look something up or get back to them. Yeah, it really is something that we worry about looking like we don't know everything in front of an owner and they don't even expect you to know everything. So yeah. it's a lot of pressure we put on ourselves for no reason. I heard a great thing of Cabbage. That's a great name for a dog. Cabbage is, isn't it? <laughs> I thought I'd heard all dog names, but Cabbage is a new one on me. <laughs> um, I read something the other day to some Twitter. It's quite made me laugh. You'll have heard it before. But it said meta-imposter syndrome. And when you know a lot of people with imposter syndrome, but you've witnessed just how competent they are. So they're not like you, the real imposter. <laughs> Oh, I heard that. Am I? Uh, yeah. I'm not sure if I'm qualified enough to yeah. feel imposter syndrome. Yeah. Everybody, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> the, the irony. Although one of them that I absolutely love, again coming back to memes on Twitter, is it says, "You know who doesn't get imposter syndrome? Cats. Cats yeah. don't get imposter syndrome. <laughs> Every single cat thinks they're the cattiest cat there ever was. The yeah. best cat, even though they do nothing but eat." sleep and go and do whatever the heck they want to do so i mean yeah. be more cat be more cat <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's really good well thanks katie quite a few times during this conversation we've said that this could be a podcast in itself and i can see how we've really just scratched the surface on this um so if you're willing we might have you back and focus on a couple more of these specific issues in future episodes and i'm sure do you, do you have any resources you want to direct anyone to um, if they want to read a bit more about this. Absolutely. I've got quite extensive blogs on my website, kt4vet.com. I've done a few on our group coaching program, vetempowered.com. Head to both of those, have a look. I'm always happy for people to drop me an email if they're like, I just don't know what direction to head in. That's really good. And we will put those links on our Vet Voices website and links to this podcast as well so people can easily find them. But thank you, Katie. I really appreciate that. It's really nice to see you again. Okay.